0: Our shared service platform is the power. We call it a barbell. It holds up the company. We have sales and marketing on one side of the barbell. We have logistics distribution operations on the other side of the barbell. But holding it up in the middle is your IT platform, your accounting, your food safety. In 2018, when we started this vision, our shared service platform cost about 6% of sales. This year, we have invested three times more in dollars on that barbell And our cost of sales is down to 3%, so half the cost. And we do
1: that through the power of acquisition. Welcome to The X Factor, where we visit with proven private equity-backed leaders to unpack a compelling area of value creation to help our listeners gain an edge as they grind toward a liquidity event of their own. X Factor is presented by Private Equity CXO, the world's largest digital community of PE-backed executives. You can find a link to PECXO in the description to start your free membership and unlock exclusive content. I'm your host, Rob Huxtable, a partner at Falcon, a retained executive search firm exclusively recruiting C-level leaders for private equity-owned portfolio companies. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Tom Walzer, CEO of Seiko Foods, a private equity-backed CPG manufacturer. We're excited to hear Tom's strategies for achieving a deal thesis X-Factor. And striking a balance between organic and inorganic growth. Tom, welcome, and let's get into it. Rob, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, good deal. So, Tom, you've got a a bit of a unique background in that you've sat in Fortune 500, you've sat in a family owned business, you helped recapitalize that family owned business into a private equity backed portfolio company and that's quite a spread of experiences. So I'm sure all that comes to the forefront in your leadership, but I thought we could get into your early career experience at at some of the Fortune 500s before we get into the deal thesis itself. When you think back, what did you learn from those experiences that's most helpful today in a private equity-backed mid-market setting and and equally as importantly, what are the things that you left behind that belong in the corporate world but not in in your current universe?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Robin. To to give the audience a little background, I'm a finance guy by trade, and grew up a little bit in banking, and then switched over to a privately held manufacturing company where I started off in cost accounting and really learned the cost of goods side of the PNL. Moved over to a sales finance role, and that privately held company. Was sold to a PE firm that had a vision of taking it to a global consumer package good platform. So in my 17 years, a variety of roles and within corporate America, we took company from uh, 200 million in one product line, primarily U.S., to about four and a half billion globally, with most of our sales outside of the U.S. And I, I left there as the senior vice president and CFO of that firm. And my team was responsible for doing the integration work in the shared service platform of the M&A transaction. So we'd come in, do the due diligence, the transaction, the integration work and ring out the synergies of the shared service platform. So I think what I learned is that the power of acquisition and the power of arbitrage, the power of synergies, and that you have to take care of each acquisition organically to have a long-term sustainable competitive advantage. And when you put the two together, organic and inorganic growth, and you have diligence upon what you're looking to accomplish, it becomes exponentially more powerful. And I think those are the great lessons that I took away. Some of the lessons I I like to leave behind and what I wanted was more of a family-oriented culture. I wanted an all-ships-rise culture that, that we weren't doing this to create wealth for just a few. It was about creating employee stock ownership enabling others to be the best version of themselves, both professionally and personally, creating a safe place for my people to, to explore and fail fast and learn and adapt and, and have fun. Like having fun is the number one thing that we should be doing professionally because the rest will come when you have that genuine experience. So I think that's the corporate aspects where those things may have been at risk or in jeopardy I left behind. But I applied some amazing learnings that I had from that 17-year experience. I couldn't do what I do today without that experience.
1: Well said. And for those listening who might be a little newer to inorganic growth, let's just set a little bit of a stage. Among all the levers that private equity loves to pull, inorganic is as important as any for most businesses primarily for a couple of reasons. And I'll lay this out, Tom, and then you can, you can polish it up as, as you've lived it. But we want to buy companies at a smaller multiple of EBITDA than we trade at the platform today. And, and when that happens, an add-on that trades for six times is now worth 12 times, and that's the EBITDA multiple arbitrage. And then there's some follow-on post-acquisition synergies that can yield additional EBITDA contribution, because maybe there's some redundancies that are no longer needed in that add-on. And the combined platform, if we do enough M&A, is now large enough that it trades for a higher multiple itself. Everybody wins through M&A, but how how else would you explain that concept to, to the audience? The word arbitrage is a financial term and, and could be unique to some
0: out there, but It it is about leveraging yourself where the sum of the the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So, you know, step one is the transaction. And as Rob alluded to this, this notion of, can we buy something at a multiple less than we currently trade at? That creates an instant return on your investment. Use the example of a million dollar EBITDA business and use Rob's example of buying it for a six multiple and you're trading at at an eight multiple, well, that's worth immediately an eight multiple in your portfolio. So, you know, two times that million dollars of of EBITDA, it's worth eight million in your portfolio, but you're only paying six million. So you just made a 33% return on your investment without regard to financing. So that's arbitrage number one is transaction. Second is Creating arbitrage through synergies. And those synergies can be, we look at it as three or four fold. The synergies of the transaction. How do you leverage seller financing so you have less equity in the deal to create further arbitrage? How do you leverage earnouts and align a seller and a buyer to, to minimize your risk? That creates arbitrage. You have synergies. Those synergies can be SGNA or shared service related. How do you leverage your team in IT and HR and accounting and collections, you know, how do you bring out synergies of commonality of parts? How do you ring out synergies logistically or distribution or operationally? And so those synergies really add up. If you buy a, again, using the example of a million dollar business at a six multiple, you finance it right, you uh, structure it right. It's extremely powerful on the front end. If through synergies, you can take and increase the earnings by another 20 to 50% on just that back office, and you generate another half a million of synergies at your eight multiple, you're now at 8 million plus the synergies of four, you're at 12 million for something you just purchased days ago or weeks ago for six, and you've doubled your money. And that's the power from a PE firm perspective is the arbitrage on transaction, the arbitrage on the operation, and then making sure you take care of each of those acquisitions from an organic perspective
1: and, and driving even further synergies through organic growth. Yeah, because presumably as attractive as those add-ons might be, they may not be as professionalized as your platform is around go-to-market strategies and fundamental organic growth skills. Okay, awesome. So let's let's fast forward to when you decide to do a partnership with private equity and you guys are closing the deal and you're, you're formulating your 90-day plan, but ultimately the investment thesis so just give us a, a sense in those days, how were you and the sponsor thinking about the thesis as it relates to both organic and inorganic growth and what you wanted to do with the company?
0: Yeah, great question. So by by way of background, I purchased Seiko Foods in 2014 and I actually owned it 100%, purchased it from a founding family and quickly realized, and I too was hopefully smart in buying it for a fair multiple, I hopefully negotiated well. And then I structured it with some seller financing with the founder. And I quickly realized what an important asset he was and an enabler to the business. And we, months into the deal, did a debt for equity swap at a higher valuation, and I brought him back in as a partner. So that's a second example of arbitrage. But to fast forward to those first couple of years where we were private, we were small, we were professionalizing the company. So we were looking at just what does our org structure look like? How do we streamline operations? How do we make sure we run on one ERP platform? We need to have the right people doing the right things across the organization, applying some of those corporate principles. And our growth started to take off from an organic perspective. Ray Santa, the founder of Seiko Foods and myself said, you know what, I think we need a partner. We want to go out and buy some acquisitions. We want to grow inorganically. And it's not very smart of us to look at our 401ks and our kids 529 plans for our how to finance our acquisition strategy and so we were looking for a partner that would help with two things strategy and capital we were not looking for an operating partner so we went in and we were honest with ourselves what what do we want and we knew we were strong operators and we wanted somebody that would help us where we needed help but not try to help where we wouldn't we went through an exhaustive process to find Benford Capital in late 2016. And the investment thesis, and I think what excited them is they they like the notion of this management team that's been there, done that corporately, has the legacy of the Santa family that goes back decades. They sold Swiss Miss hot cocoa to Conagra in 1968 before founding Seiko Foods. There's some secret sauce here and there's some legacy brands But I think it was the management team that excited them about what is next and this notion that we can take care of organic growth at the same time we take care of inorganic growth. And that earlier example we were using, Rob, I think was really Benford's thesis is if we can continue to grow this thing modestly, organically through white space and new product development, and at the same time, look for strategic bolt-on acquisitions, we can look back and be in a pretty special place. Through that, we've now done three acquisitions with Benford Capital. I can kind of, when the time is right, jump into what are those pillars that we look at. But that was really their investment thesis, and it's been uh, hugely successful. We've grown rapidly, and uh, we really have now a foundation in place that we can be, you know, a global consumer package good platform.
1: It sounds like the thesis was less about grow it faster, but let's increase the size of the entity, so that if we can maintain growth, we're, we're generating that much more progress. Yeah, well said. Yeah. Okay, great. So when you thought about the thesis behind the M&A, for our listeners, you'll hear private equity firms talk about the total addressable market known as TAM, and they love to expand the TAM because it means there's more white space to go chase, uh, as, as Tom referenced so when you all thought about the, the TAM that you were going to be able to expand, was it new geographies, new products, new customer acquisition? What, what all went into you formulating the, the bones of the inorganic part of the thesis? Yeah, great question. And I
0: think it, the answer is D, all the above. And mm-hmm. the unique thing is, is you can't buy anything that isn't for sale. And if someone isn't willing to transact with you. So the first thing is making sure you put the right resources and focus in on your pipeline. But before you can do your pipeline, you got to understand what is it that we're looking for strategically? So pillar number one of what we have done to date is we said we want small niche shelf stable products that are in the produce aisle or the baking aisle where our two strengths are. And if we can find acquisitions that fit that that's probably first and foremost. If we can find areas that are high branded in an oligopoly or dualopoly or monopoly like market share position, even better. If it could vertically integrate within our operation and we ring out some synergies, that's unique and appealing to us. But strategically, we are very careful to only do acquisitions that that fit pillar number one of our six pillar strategy, which is, all about enabling our current brands to be stronger. So the first example I would give you is in 2018, we purchased California sun-dried foods, number one share position in sun-dried tomatoes. That product sits right next to my number one share Dolce Fruta confectionery business. That made us more powerful to the buyer. The business was simple, it was easy to integrate. It had all of our key retailers. One key retailer did not have distribution of California Sun Drive, happened to be our highest velocity retailer in Dolce Fruta, and vice versa. So very strong penetration in the market and, and uh, very strong retail. The second acquisition we did in 2021 was an e-commerce play. So just the opposite. It deconcentrated us away from traditional grocery and put us in a D to C platform where we could start to look at our B 2 B business, direct to consumer. How do we play at Amazon in light of COVID and changing consumer behaviors? We knew we needed to, to develop an e-commerce platform. So that strategically made a lot of sense for us. And if we could bring in resources that were experts on how to drive Hoosiers e-commerce platform, we could apply those learnings to our Seiko legacy product lines in the new California Sun Drive acquisition. And then our third acquisition is in the baking aisle. It's a number one share position, nine items, 100% outsourced, manufacturing, very simple integration, monopoly, fifth generation, family-owned, 125-year-old brand whose products sit right next to my Seiko Foods buttermilk, milk, and cocoa business. So it makes us more powerful the baking buyer, just fit like a glove. Synergies galore from an operation, logistics, sales distribution perspective. So, really good from pillar number one. Pillar number one is all about staying on point and making sure you have scarce resources, scarce cash. You need to apply very rigorous diligence in what you choose to act on because that takes capital and it takes time and energy to do the integration, the optimization, and then the eventual organic growth of that we are at a position now where you'd like to do one of these every
1: year or every other year, and hopefully larger in scale going forward. Great context sounds sounds like if I were to oversimplify it, it's a simple question of does this add-on materially make us better, or do we make its already strong position materially stronger based on who's got leverage for who? and And therefore you've got a win-win situation. And I think we hear a lot from clients that they want to do strategically complementary acquisitions. So this arbitrage thing, yes, you'll see some assets that do a roll up where they're buying just about anything they can because it's a common single service line proposition and it's about accumulation of volume of EBITDA. But for a majority of businesses out there like Tom's, the strategically complementary aspect is really important. And it sounds like you've stayed very disciplined on that front.
0: Yeah, that's extremely well said. And two words that I did not provide in my summary are, that are near and dear to our pillar number one of does it have a strategic fit is complementary and adjacent, and there are times that maybe we'll look to broaden that horizon a little bit as we get a a stronger platform in place, as we get more resources in place to take a bigger jump, but to date, we've been very hyper-focused on, on adjacent and complementary strategically.
1: And I don't know if you want to take us through a couple of the other pillars first, before we drill down, I'll de- defer to you on that front. Sure. Maybe, well, how about we just take each pillar? So pillar two, we already touched on it. So strategically, does
0: it have the right fit? Is it complementary? Is it adjacent? You know, is it highly branded? Can we vertically enter all the things we discussed? But pillar number two then is about that arbitrage. Can we purchase this business smartly where it's more valuable to us under our portfolio than standalone? And, and typically that is the case. We, we often look to family-owned businesses, founder-owned. We have a very powerful formula here. I have a 52-year veteran founder who's still in the business 10 years later as my partner and Benford's partner and Ray San on one side of us. My son started a few years ago when we brought on the Hoosier acquisition and, and leads that division from a pricing and operations perspective. And Founders like that story. It has played well to our first three acquisitions. And so we're able to structure a deal typically that is more accretive and not only purchase price, but leveraging seller financing or earnout structures, and then being able to grow our core business organically fast enough to leverage, hopefully, 100% debt as the cheapest form of financing. So we're We're as focused in on the core organic growth as we are in in inorganic because that is the cheapest financing to really leverage a shareholder value. So that's pillar number two is all things transaction, arbitrage, financing, and structure.
1: Yeah. And for for our listeners, depending on the size and how transformative the add-on is, You'll see some private equity firms use a mix of debt and equity, but if, if we can avoid dilution and preserve capital to be deployed into platform investments, that's always going to be private equity's preference, or so it seems. So Tom, you mentioned the arbitrage and it has to work right in part because you're going to pay the right entry price for that add-on, which sort of presumes that unless it's a distressed sale- That they want to be part of your family of companies and so maybe step back for us a little bit on on how you approach an acquisition target to build the trust to sort of create the allure that they want to be part of the family so that when negotiations roll around yes they'll be tough and smart and determined but they'll be pragmatic under the notion that okay i'm going to get a good price today but hopefully a beautiful price when that second bite of the apple comes around when the larger platform recapitalizes.
0: Yeah. We've actually had all the above. We've had one of the acquisitions was the two founders wanted to retire and they had a health situation and they needed speed and certainty in, in integration within 60 days or less. We committed an entire roadmap and resource the way they wanted to ensure that we did that for them. And and that was important to them. Another acquisition, the founder wanted to stay on. He was a great inventor and he was an innovator, but he wasn't an operator. And so we committed to put resources in place to bring him live up onto an ERP system, immediately food safety platforms. We would handle all the shared service platform and that he could just work on new product development and innovation and new channels and, and get another bite at the apple. And so we have both sides of it. And I think what Uh, Again, back to that earlier story, the power of having a founder on one side of you and your son at 25 years old, who's running another business on the other side of you is powerful. And then you have your, your sponsor sitting at the table with us that we are professional. We have strategy, we have capital, we have processes, policies, procedures, and practices and people and every P word you could think of. But at the end of the day, we act with highest level of integrity transparency, partner oriented approach. And if we didn't, the founder wouldn't be at my side 10 years later through, through a recap years ago.
1: That's really powerful. And among everything you said, the, the one item that stands out most to me as being pretty unique and, and therefore powerful is, is the founder at the table. Because a well-run platform should have a a quality CEO, should have a a professional and experienced sponsor, but there's not always a founder who can create the atmosphere of this is a place that I felt comfortable selling and, and, and maintaining a business relationship because there are a lot of horror stories about what happens after founders sell. And I think for our audience, and I'd like you to touch on this. Sometimes when a new CEO comes in or a new management team comes in and, and succeeds a founder, there's there's a little bit of friction. Maybe that founder doesn't really want to go, or yes, they sold to private equity, but they thought they'd stay through exit, or it, it happened before they ideally wanted it to, which creates a bit of a backdrop. And it's management's job to either, I suppose, move past it and just set the founder aside if if that's what everybody wants to do. But in your case your ability to to build that trust-based relationship and create aligned interests. And and he was able to trust you to be CEO and run the company. Uh, What advice would you have for for management teams out there on how to engage with founders in a way that really hits that perfect balancing act of, of value add without interfering with management?
0: I think it's, you treat your founder like you would treat somebody that is on the line And if you treat people like professional adults, and you're honest, and you carry yourself with integrity, and you have a common good, people are smart. They have common sense. They want to win. And I think what happens is a lot of times people are disingenuous. They have an investment thesis that they're going to integrate the back office, but we're scared to tell someone. And so we don't tell them that. We say we're looking into it. I don't operate that way. I learned in all my years in corporate America that we were always best when we sat across from them and said, we don't know. We have a thesis that it makes sense to bring this up on our ERP system. We have a thesis that it makes sense to combine shipments. We have a thesis that our AR and AP staff should be centralized, but we need to learn your business, but we're going to protect you. We're going to put you on retention. We're going to give you a completion bonus. We're going to treat you like a professional adult. I think the same thing goes for a founder. You know, when I purchased this company in 2014, it was a bit dated. It was a bit tired. It needed graphics change. It needed a professionalization of the back office and the front office. And I told the founder that, and he said, I know, and I need your help. And we did it together. And I did the the heavy lifting or the harder stuff. And that happens in these situations. But if you treat people as professional adults, they will work hard for you even if they're not part of the final outcome. People have a lot of respect. We had an operation down in Indiana for e-commerce business. Ultimately, we determined it was high cost and high risk to continue to operate there. We sat with that team. Every person had a job before they finished their mission and we paid the completion bonuses in advance because they collaborated with us and we closed down that operation as orderly as you can and They, even though they weren't part of the long-term, they had the option of potentially moving here, although the positions didn't really warrant that type of move. Treat people with honesty and integrity and care, and it works out, no matter if you're the founder or someone more junior in the org.
1: Yeah, I think there's this fear that if we're too honest, what if the target acquisition decides not to close and then we've missed out? But the animosity, if you're not honest and do it anyway, may be equally destructive to your company. So tr- truth is often our friend, I suppose. Yeah, and I think you have to
0: listen on the front end. What are their needs? And you can usually pick up on that throughout the process. Our thesis has been right most times, but you have to be willing and able to adapt.
1: So, so that's, that's powerful. If I'm hearing you right, Yes, you're there to do M&A. It's your mandate. You've got to do the things we discussed earlier, but you're approaching it as if to say, how can we make your M&A dreams come true by partnering with us? And what do you want out of this transaction? And how can we be a party to making that happen while you know adhering to an honest and transparent, integrity-rich approach at the same time? That's exactly right. That's how we start every time. In fact, that's how I start most
0: interviews. What do you want? How do we make you as happy as you can be? So you're excited and motivated to come to work every day, founder or junior employee to, to give us your best. And then, you know,
1: you create culture from that. Yep. Sounds great. Okay. I I don't want to hold us up too much. Let's move on to the next pillar. So let's see pillar. Pillar one is strategy. Pillar
0: two is arbitrage and all things to make it financial. Number three is synergy. So we, we touched on this really quick, but synergies come in many different ways, and it's just looking right down that PL or balance sheet. For us, our shared service platform is the power. We call it a barbell. It holds up the company. We have sales and marketing on one side of the barbell. We have logistics distribution operations on the other side of the barbell. Those have product line nuances and expertise, but holding it up in the middle is your IT platform, your accounting, your food safety. AR, AP, and and things of that nature. In 2018, when we started this vision, our shared service platform cost about 6% of sales and was barely X in dollars. This year, we have invested three times more in dollars on that barbell and our cost of sales is down to 3%, so half the cost. And we, mm-hmm. and we do that through the power of acquisition. So the synergies, as you continue to ring them out and you put new plates on each end of the barbell with a Cal sun acquisition or a Hoosier Hill acquisition and our latest one, you you need a barbell that can hold that up. And so the, the shared service synergies are usually pretty significant and can be 20 to 50 plus percent of the trailing 12 month EBITDA that you're buying the company off of. So it's a very powerful place to play. And then sometimes you can run into operational synergies, depending on if you can vertically integrate, move some operations in, you know, you want to be really careful with that and and usually wait on that shared services. We do immediately anything on the ends of the barbell, we learn the business first. So we don't disrupt the business and make a mistake. And then on the sales and marketing side, how you ship the orders, logistic savings, leveraging your own distribution platform usually yields some nice synergies as well. But we shoot to have synergies be 50 to 100% plus of our acquisition over time, which makes for a very powerful return on your investment.
1: Well, approaching it with a bogey in mind is helpful. I'm not sure if every... Manager team is doing that versus taking what they can get, but that, that's well said. Okay, next pillar. Next pillar is, is white
0: space. So we define white as Where can we fill in our gaps? So what retailers are we not in that we should be in with our products naturally is one of the biggest white space. But we're blessed to have very strong ACV penetration. We're pretty much in every chain on the traditional grocery side. But for sake of foods, this says, how do we develop club? How do we develop dollar? How do we develop the drug channel, the e-commerce channel, even broader than just Amazon? Those are really great white space wins. But within each retailer, you take uh, a Walmart, Kroger, HEV, they don't carry our entire portfolio, so how can we ensure that they do? And what, how do we bring them innovative products that exceed their expectations and delight them to want to carry more and more of our products? How do we become more important to that retailer? So those are kind of the white space areas that we look for. And within each acquisition, as I have mentioned with Cal SunDried, you know, our number one velocity retailer for our Dolce Fruta business. Calcundrite is not currently in. Well, how do we leverage that relationship further from a white space? And vice versa. So it's not just a one-way street. It's how do these acquisition strengths help cover up some of our weaknesses, and vice versa.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. And for our listeners, you'll often hear private equity refer to their portfolio companies as a platform. But really, they need to platformize the companies that they buy so that they qualify as a platform. What a, what a platform really is, is a robust thing that is scaling and can quickly and easily integrate acquisitions and has leverage. And so what Tom's doing very successfully is, is using M&A as one of the means to strengthen the platform that he is building. And now it's a, not, not just a bigger and more valuable entity, but more powerful with more positive leverage that it can apply. Yeah, I think that's well said.
0: And what's interesting is the synergies of that platform is we went from 6% of sales down to 3%. And we don't know the magic number and I'm not trying to push it down more. We'll let it play out in due time and learn, but that's a synergy and therefore dropping to the bottom line. And then you add in white space dropping to the bottom line what happens is your organic growth then is fueled which provides more ebitda which provides you more debt capacity so banks are willing and you know in this environment maybe to lend safely where we're not overlevered we like to you know stay below a four times leverage if you you find for every million dollars of organic growth you create on the bottom line you're opening up 4 million dollars of debt capacity and so if you you start to parlay that and you start to look at the next acquisitions, you, your ability to leverage debt from your house becoming more valuable uh, is very, very important in your investment thesis because all banks will sponsor your acquisition at some level at a modest three to four times as long as you do your QOE and prove out those earnings and you feel competent But if you can have even more confidence because your platform is strong and in a great cap structure perspective, the ability to use 100 percent debt in a smart way where you're not over-levered is as powerful as it gets for your, you know,
1: maximizing your MOIC or your IRR back to your sponsor. The delicate dance with debt, because your cost of capital matters, running a responsible business matters. But for those of us in our CXO community, your option grant will be closely tied to how astutely your sponsor manages your debt ratio. Okay. Sounds great. So ne- next pillar, please. Bullet four is new product
0: development. So we look at how can within each of our product lines, each of our divisions, how can we grow that business? So I take Dolce Fruta. that's a 35, 40 year old brand, number one share position, almost nearly hundred percent ACV. Well, how do you grow that? the best thing that we've done is we've looked to a license arrangement. So we just signed with Bailey's liquor and developed a melting way for that taste like Bailey's. And and could we launch now into a white Prosecco and go after a new segment of the store and other store retailers out there that are category killers really unique things on just licensing other new product developments. We've been in powdered milk uh, in a non-fat dry milk. Well, with COVID and preparedness and essentials and this new millennial customer willing and wanting to try alternative milks, suddenly you have uh, oat milk and goat milk and and other innovative things. And our Hoosier Hill acquisition brought us knowledge and learnings about niche crafty type food staple pantry items that I can now bring from my Hoosier Hill platform over into my retail channel Mm. under a different brand name because Hoosier Hill Farm will always stay digitally native. So we control the value proposition and the price point, but I can take those products and take them into retail and launch into new alternatives. And we, we just landed major distribution on a whole milk and we're looking at an oat milk alternative that would be at retail. So we're really excited about new product development roadmaps like that. So we leverage licenses, we leverage our other acquisitions that we purchase of the niche items they have, and how can we
1: cross-pollinate? I'm hearing a couple of quick takeaways. One is that you found a way to use your M&A strategy to not just preserve, but strengthen the entrepreneurial DNA of the company and avoid becoming the acquirer that's lost a little bit of its entrepreneurial way. And then secondly, there's a lot of reasons a, an acquirer would pay an EBITDA multiple for a business that's at the higher end of that sector's range. And, and one of them is, wow, what a great new product development engine they have. That gets us excited about the portfolio going forward. We want to be in the business of this company. So good for you guys.
0: Yeah, thank you. It has been kind of our our key to success. So I think we, we touched on four or five of the pillars that the last pillar that we look at is merger and acquisition within that particular acquisition. So what could we do in the future that would make the acquisition target that we haven't even purchased yet even more powerful? So in the example of California Sundry, we we know we play in a dualopoly and there's a, an interesting target out there for us that we, we're, we're excited about. And there's other ways that we can grow On the Hoosier Hill platform, we think there's a lot of other family brands that we could bring to the table and bring the Hoosier Hill banner over a broader product offering. And so we look at things where maybe we could vertically integrate as well. So if we're 100% outsourced on one of our product lines, is that strategic co or something that we might be interested in? Owning and vertically integrating and picking up the synergy of that operation, but we'd also have the complexity of being vertically integrated. So we're open to anything. And you know, so far our precision focus has been more from a commercial perspective, sales and marketing, but we would also look at how we can vertically integrate as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's exciting when you can do both add-on acquisitions that fundamentally change the profile of a company and then as our listeners may know, what are called tuck-in acquisitions, which are maybe smaller deals that would actually be absorbed by divisions or previously acquired companies. Tom, in our remaining time, curious about resourcing the integration of these acquisitions because getting it done right and focusing on culture and, and achieving all the synergies you mentioned is no easy task. So how do you staff the integration of an acquisition without bringing on extra bloat, but also not burning your people out through the process? Yeah, that's a
0: great question. And I have to give major kudos to Benford Capital uh, on this. We have a resource there that is working on our pipeline often. And since that is such an iterative process, we, we try to not disrupt management's time on the very front end. And we try to keep the funnel as full as we can we're always doing a continuous check-in with management. At the same time, we're our best pipeline. We found Hoosier Hill Farm by just trying to learn our white space for our sake of legacy business and how do we get into e-commerce. We kept coming across this Hoosier Hill Farm as the number one rated and ranked brand and, and the categories we play in, and, and we reached out. And so management brought that opportunity to Benford, and then Benford helped us get to the table. In the interest of Cal Sundride, our founder was good friends with the two founders of Cal Sundride. So it is a mix. You, The business needs to be involved with pipeline generation, but the heart, that's very difficult at times and resource heavy. So we look to our, our PE partner to help us with pipeline quite a bit, but we're at the table, we're learning, we're listening and that we're aligned and they're challenging us and we're challenging them and it's a great iterative process. Once we get to the dance and where you have somebody that, you know, is taking our call or taking an intro meeting, it is mission critical that the business owns that because those initial conversations, those initial site visits, you glean a lot of knowledge about the business, the operation, they glean a lot about you. So you don't necessarily want just your PE sponsor to be representing you because they can't in good faith have the same passion and culture about your operation as you do, we would be foolish to not put a founder and a son on each side of us and have the PE sponsor at the table with that powerful formula. So the business quickly owns it from an introductory perspective. And then if we're blessed enough to get into a dance on the LOI and we're getting close and we're kicking off the QOE and doing the appraisal of business and brand audits and things like that, we, the business own that. But the PE firm, your sponsor, it's really critical you find the right sponsor that sits at the table with you along the way. The due diligence that I ask Benford to do with me, they have acted as a additional employee of Seiko when we ramp up. So they come in, they ramp up, they sit at the table, they're they're doing the due diligence on the QOE, They're, they're helping with the funds flow, they're helping with the bank financing and the lender presentations we're not resourced properly to do it on our own for your listeners. I think the most important thing to hear is you need balance and a mix. And as you grow, you can resource a little different, but I think our success is that we acquire businesses together. Certain elements have a lead, but we're in lockstep together. There's the left hand knows what the right hand is doing from introduction through transaction, and once we hit transaction, the business owns it 100%. We have to own that business. There's no aspect of it that should be run outside of Seiko.
1: So Tom, another question I'm sure that's on listeners' minds is the the cultural aspect of profiling and properly integrating add-on acquisitions. What advice do you have for our listeners on that front? Great question.
0: I think Anytime that you can help employees act like owners, you're in a winning position. So one of the things I'm most proud of is that when we partnered with Benford Capital, we created an employee uh, ownership plan and six of the key leaders became owners in the company. And it is fascinating to me of what that enabling, what that ownership mantra uh, looks like when we go into an acquisition. It is powerful when my, my CMO is speaking as an owner or my vice president of sales is speaking as an owner. When we go into a Walmart call, we, I don't, Tom Walzer is not on that call. My owner operator partner that calls on Walmart is making that call. And it's a passionate family owned PE backed professionalized company that has this employee ownership model that becomes incredibly powerful. And as we build out the platform, it just grows. And that culture permeates the rest of the organization. And our customers feel it. Our suppliers feel it. Our potential acquirees feel it. And it just pays it forward every time.
1: Yep. Outstanding. And that's what every sponsor wants is a, a management team and entity platform that operates like owners, because that's what they are. And when that piece of the puzzle is in place, it makes for a a much better situation for sure.
0: Yeah. And what's really cool is how fun is it that when you have outsized returns as a PE firm, that you are creating wealth for those in the organization that help do it. It is inspiring. And we picked the right partner that has enabled this management team to be the best versions of themselves and, and create wealth for everybody as we continue
1: our journey. Well, to our listeners, I promise a follow on episode soon on how to pick the right sponsor and how to pick the right platform, because getting those two decisions right greatly de risks a beautiful outcome. Well, Tom, we covered a lot of great ground here today. And I think. Putting this conversation in the context of having done C-suite searches for a dozen years, I think my biggest message to our audience is as a management team, as a CEO, own your acquisition strategy, work alongside your sponsor. Yes, lean on them, allow them to do their part, but if you give too much quarter to them, you won't be as effective as you could otherwise be in creating value and or if they're not active enough, you just won't have enough MA success when you know what you're doing. Sponsors want you at the table and they want you to own it. But if you don't, they'll occupy any vacuum of space that you create. Uh, and doing so collaboratively as a team is is the magic and elusive partnership that uh, everybody seeks. So anyway, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been super illuminating and Godspeed with the rest of the journey at Seiko. Thank you very much. Uh, Take care, Rob. Be sure to tune in to our next episode with a panel of M&A experts discussing how private equity-backed CXOs can thrive amid the current deal-making environment to maximize their M&A efforts. I'm your host, Rob Huxtable, and thank you for listening to The X Factor.